Good morning again. This is now the second uh, sermon in a new sermon series called Life in the Body. And this morning we're going to talk about uh, the home, or more particularly uh, about the family. Before I say uh, anything else, little theologians, thank you for uh, being uh, with us. Uh, thank you for uh, listening carefully. Uh, I think it's, uh, it can be really challenging. Sit with your family. Maybe you're in your uh, pajamas and listen to your pastor preach. Or maybe it's easier uh, this way than it ordinarily is. But uh, little theologians, I want to talk to you a couple times during this sermon. Uh, but first of all, why don't you just start drawing a big pile of bricks? I'm going to mention those bricks uh, later on, so please listen carefully. But start, uh, start drawing uh, just a pile of bricks. Just slowly work uh, on uh, brick by brick and listen carefully to the sermon. Our passage this morning is from Ephesians 2, just three verses, uh, verses 19 uh, through 21. So Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 21. Would you uh, first join me in prayer? Father, we need you to speak to us, to alert us, uh, to make yourself known, and we need you to do that uh, pretty frequently, <laughs> pretty loudly. We're grateful that you are a tender father, that you care for us with a great mercy, that even as you're disciplining us, you're doing so with great tenderness. We thank you. We ask that uh, by your Holy Spirit, we would come to understand uh, your word more this morning uh, during this sermon uh, than we did uh, before this worship service. And we pray that uh, you would make us uh, thoughtful of Ephesians 2 over the course of this day and week. And we thank you for doing this in your mercy, in Jesus' name, amen. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21 so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This uh, is God's word. There's so much uh, here in this passage that actually overflows into other sermons that you'll hear uh, later in this sermon series. Uh, there are a variety of themes here. Uh, last week we talked about the togetherness of the church, and here we have uh, a reference to that togetherness with the saints. You see that in the passage. Uh, there's reference in this passage to a cornerstone. Uh, later, you'll hear a sermon about uh, Jesus as uh, the head of the church, the leader of the church, that cornerstone. Uh, you uh, hear in this passage about the foundation of the church, and you'll, you'll hear later a sermon uh, about the uh, eternality of the church, if the church is so uh, well-founded that it's uh, eternally, eternally permanent. There's a reference here about 
uh, a church is being built up and growing, and, and you'll hear a sermon later about the vitality of the church, that uh, individuals in the church and the church body as a whole is growing uh, and maturing. And so there's a lot of themes that are here. That's one of the challenges of this sermon series is to be able to pull, pull apart the themes uh, so that they fit in, in a single uh, passage. And I think there's always going to be some uh, overflow, but what we're going to learn this morning is that the church body is the people of God uh, drawn into God's own household by his grace. The people of God are actually drawn into a household of God by his own grace. Quick outline of the sermon. I want to begin uh, with uh, what it means to be an outsider, what it means to be an insider, and then finish with the blueprint of the church family that we find in this passage. So outsider, insider, blueprint. Uh, beginning with the outsider, verse 19, in the first century Roman culture, the people whom Paul is actually addressing, when Paul uses a couple of words, those words would stand out. Stranger would stand out to the Ephesian Christians. Alien would stand out to this church body. Let's look at these one at a time. Uh, The word for a stranger has always been uh, a rather unusual uh, word. Uh, On the one hand, a stranger is simply someone who is different. They're known, recognized because they don't actually fit. They're different. In Roman history, oftentimes the stranger would be a reference to a barbarian, uh, someone who is not part of the Roman Empire. But on the other hand, a stranger uh, would also be used uh, as a word to denote those people who were uh, as a guest in your house, someone who is near. They're a stranger, but they're still near. But there's something about that stranger being in a house surrounded by people who like really belong in that house, uh, people who are really members of the family. The stranger uh, is there, noticed, but stands out for a number of reasons. There's a contrast of sorts, even though the stranger is actually uh, in the house. And so sometimes in the history of the way this word is used, uh, stranger refers to uh, a a guest, uh, a foreign uh, guest in your home or uh, in your country. But real quickly, what a stranger would always recognize is this. I'm welcome here, but I'm watched. A stranger would know that. I'm welcome here, but I'm watched. Now, the word for alien, most often in classical literature, shows up not as a noun. It's here as a noun. It shows up as an adjective. An alien is simply someone who is uh, living with you. They don't actually belong there uh, like the stranger, uh, but they're actually there to stay. They're living with you. That's the alien. Uh, They don't, of course, have the history of the natives, and they don't have the rights of the natives. So if the, if the stranger is saying, uh, I'm, I'm here, but I'm being watched, the alien would say, I live here, but I don't have any history here. I live here, but I don't have any history here. And these two words, stranger and alien, they would have just resonated with Christians in Ephesus. Ephesus is a culturally diverse city. It's the third largest city of the Roman Empire at this time. Uh, the, uh, the inhabitants of uh, Ephesus would have been uh, very diverse. The original locals, the people who would assume that they're the ones who are really connected to the land, were ethnically Anatolians. Uh, But there would be uh, others that came after them uh, who established the Lydian Empire. Uh, 
And there, of course, would be uh, Greeks there, but there wouldn't be just Greeks. Some of those Greeks would uh, uh, say that they were uh, Ionian Greeks. They are Greeks with deeper roots than the average Greek person, roots in Athens. And so you would have uh, ethnic Anatolians and Lydians and a couple of different kinds uh, of Greeks, and then uh, stacked on top of these would be Roman citizens that were actually sent to the city most recently in order to keep things in order. It's to give uh, uh, Rome uh, a foothold in the city of Ephesus. It would have been a very, very diverse city. Now, what Paul is doing in this passage is he's actually calling everyone in the church a stranger or an alien, or at least saying everyone in the church was at one time a stranger or an alien. And when Paul does that, there'd be people in the church who would stand up and say, I was never that. I was never a stranger or I was never an alien. I actually uh, belong here. Uh, I'm not the person you ought to be watching. I'm not the stranger. We're watching that person. And I'm not the person who just lives here but has no history here. I've been here for three or four or five or eight generations. There's something offensive when Paul says, you used to be a stranger and you used to be an alien. Well, wait a minute. It's hard to know what exactly Paul means when he says that you were at one time strangers or uh, aliens. Uh, Perhaps it was uh, simply a reference to a Jewish and Gentile distinction uh, in the church. And so he's describing those who were outside of Judaism and then those who uh, came into Judaism as opposed to those who were Jews at birth. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here. Now, this church in Ephesus, it was a missionary church, just like uh, all of the churches in uh, the book of Acts. Uh, this is the missionary era of the church, and so these are uh, first century churches. Uh, the church at Ephesus, uh, no doubt, would have been a church that was exclusively filled by people who were converted as adults. This wouldn't be a second or third generation Christian body. It would have been a first generation and so when Paul says that you are strangers or aliens, it's most likely a reference not to something that's uh, ethnic or something related to the location. Uh, it's most likely uh, has to do with their spiritual state. It has to do with the way they were before they were converted. I think if you scan up in Ephesians chapter 2 to verses 1 through 3, you read a description of what many of them personally experienced, if not all of them tend to think all of them, but you, you be the judge as you listen to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, this is a description of life without Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, Paul is going to say to Christians that uh, you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Uh, it's almost as if what Paul is saying when he's calling them strangers and aliens, he's not uh, speaking uh, in uh, sociocultural terms. Uh, he's speaking to them in spiritual terms. It's, it's uh, strangers and aliens in the extreme, their state before God. Uh, 
This is a Christian viewed from God's perspective. A Christian is someone who's more sinful, more undeserving than imaginable. But many of the Ephesian believers, they would have actually felt this. They would remember what that life of unbelief was like. And Paul says, you're not strangers and aliens anymore, but you most certainly were. You were outsiders. But now you're insiders, and, and Paul sets against the, the picture of a stranger uh, and an alien as something that's actually rather official. He calls all of them citizens. Now that's a word also that would have resonated with the congregation. They would know what a stranger or alien was, and they would have resisted it. And they know certainly what a citizen is. A citizen is a, is a member of a set of known laws. A citizen is someone who uh, has the legal authority of the nation on their side. A, a citizen is someone who is uh, empowered. The most ancient meaning of the word citizen is a person who is a, mem- a member of a town or connected to a town, including that town's laws, including that town's constitution. A citizen is someone who is uh, the uh, most connected member of whatever that society is. But a citizen, it would, have, it would have been a very formal term. And Paul's using this formal expression because a citizen is someone who is a very part of the fabric of the place in which they live. A citizen is so much a part of the fabric of the place in which they live that they actually uh, can't be easily removed. Uh, To an Ephesian, uh, it's membership from the perspective of the emperor. Uh, To an Ephesian, uh, to be a citizen is to be someone whom the emperor himself says, you, you belong. And to excise you from this body would be very hard indeed. In fact, it would take uh, an action of the emperor, an input of the emperor in order for you to lose that citizenship. So just think about this. Paul's addressing the church, and he says that you were once strangers and aliens, but then he says you're, you were once strangers in the extreme, aliens in the extreme. And now what he's saying to them is he's saying that you are actually members in the extreme, citizens in the extreme. Paul couldn't be describing two more different poles. And he says you were once there, but you're here. It's hard to believe the there because it's hard to believe that we were ever that bad off. But a Christian must believe that about themselves. Without Christ Jesus, well, they're under the curse of eternal damnation. And so they have to admit that they were once like that, and without Christ they would be like that. But at the same time that they admit admit that, they have to admit that the kind of citizen that they are made the kind of part of the household that God makes them, well, that too is absolutely extreme, almost hard to believe. And uh, in that category of citizenship that is hard to believe, I think there's a couple of things that really need to stand out. The first is this. What Paul means by citizenship that would have jarred the attention of the Ephesians, what he actually means is that this kind of citizenship is the kind of citizenship in which there is intimacy with God. He says, uh, you are citizens, uh, and by virtue of being citizens, you are members of the household of God. Citizenship makes you a part of God's house. 
I just think about Roman citizenship. One is a Roman citizen without being a member of Caesar's household, without, without having the freedom to, to come and go in the house of the emperor. You don't have that even though you have citizenship. But with God, citizenship means you're actually a member of God's household. There's an, there's an intimacy that you have with God by virtue of being a citizen. That's a beautiful picture of the house of God. It's a beautiful picture of God's family. So there's, first of all, there's in this kind of citizenship, intimacy with God, but there's something else. In this kind of citizenship, there's intimacy with other citizens. Paul attaches to the word citizen the Greek prefix for together. And that's why the ESV translates the word citizen as fellow citizens. But he also says, uh, being more emphatic even than that, that a citizen is someone who is with the saints. There's that picture of togetherness, but it's intimate togetherness. And so when Paul is describing uh, citizenship, uh, this image of of being a citizen uh, is an image in which you are as members of the household of God, uh, members with the other saints, you're actually uh, swept up into the king's house. You're swept into the king's house by the king's will. In fact, the, the word that Paul uses for a member of this household is saint. Now, that's God's name for a Christian. Only God can call someone holy, and if he does call someone holy, well, he must mean it. And those citizens, they have a closeness with God, but they have a closeness with others in, uh, who are in that same wonderful situation, a part of God's household, intimately connected to God, but also intimately connected to one another. This, don't you see, is a divinely formed family. Everyone in this family is uh, equal in belonging. They're equal in belonging. Uh, everyone in this, in this family is uh, uh, equal uh, as to uh, the authority by which they belong in that family. Everyone belongs by virtue of God himself. So they are equal in their belonging, and in their belonging, they really and truly belong. This is God's family. In fact, the Bible elsewhere describes this kind of family uh, as a citizenship that is heavenly. And Paul says to the Philippians that as Christians, our citizenship is actually in heaven. And Hebrews 13 says that uh, here in this present age, uh, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. That's our city. That's the city that we belong in. That's the city that God has made us a part of. He is our king. And he has made us a citizen into his very household with other fellow citizens. In fact, uh, even the heroes of the Old Testament, according to Hebrews 11, they're actually looking forward not to an earthly Jerusalem. They're actually looking forward to the city whose designer and builder is God. The writer of Hebrews says that about Abraham. That's what Abraham is looking forward to. He's looking forward to the city whose designer and builder is God. 
And so you, you, you see that the Christian family, it's a very different kind of family. It's heavenly. Even though uh, here on earth we struggle and we pine and we're waiting for the, the return of Jesus, even though that's the case, our citizenship still is a heavenly citizenship because the citizenship is orchestrated, designed, built, sustained by God. And Paul's going to explain that later. But think about the stranger who hears this, the stranger in the church at Ephesus who actually, when Paul says you are once strangers, they, they admit it. They say, yes, absolutely. I was once a stranger. Once I was welcomed with others. They tolerated me. They allowed me to be with them. But I was always watched because I could feel that I wasn't truly one of them. And that stranger in the family of God knows very well that I am welcome here. And if there's anyone watching me, it is God who is watching me for his good pleasure and for my own good. I am welcome here. And I'm watched, but I'm watched for my own benefit. And the person in the church at Ephesus who would know, readily admit that, yes, indeed, uh, I was once an alien. I know what that feels like. I, I remember uh, being uh, with people and living with people and contributing to the society of people, uh, running a, a business and, and actually being a better citizen than the others who had more legal right to be a citizen. I lived here, but I didn't have any history. Well, that person now lives here and has history. Paul says that a Christian is someone who is saved from before the foundations of the earth. God, God knew them. And so now the alien says, I live here, and I actually have history. Well, what is the blueprint for this household? Because that's what Paul does next. Paul, Paul actually spends some time fleshing out uh, what exactly it means to be a part of God's household. And he does that by describing the household. And he says that the household has a builder. And the word that Paul uses for a builder, uh, it looks like the word that we get the word uh, domicile from uh, or uh, home or, or structure. So the household has a builder, but oftentimes when we look at God as the builder and we say that God is the one who has built the church, uh, we forget that what God is building is not the structure itself, but God is building uh, with people, and that's, that's actually very important. Uh, Paul believes that it's not the house that has a builder, it's the household together that has a builder. And so you little theologians whom I asked to draw a picture of a brick, uh, draw faces on each of those bricks because this is how God is the great builder of his household. It's the people that he is using. And he is grabbing these people and he is putting them where he wants them to be. Uh, he is the builder. And Paul here, he gives a picture uh, of uh, construction, but it's a, it's a construction with people. Uh, even as this letter was being read in Ephesus, there was construction, construction going around all over the city. Archaeologists tell us this. Uh, there was a new stadium that was uh, being built around the time that this letter would have reached the Ephesians. Uh, there was an expansion project on the theater. The theater was uh, growing in size, and it would ultimately hold 20,000 people. The harbor of Ephesus was always being dredged. Historians know that. And then right in the middle of Ephesus, some 250,000 people large, what is God doing? Well, God's building a household. He's bringing uh, people 
and he's uniting those people to himself, and he's uniting those people together. And Paul here, he gives us a blueprint for that household. And the the first uh, raw ingredient, so to speak, of the household is that the household, it actually has a foundation. Verse 20, the apostles and the prophets. The, the Old Testament prophets and the apostles of the New Testament, uh, uh, here it would be some 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. But Paul, uh, aided by the Holy Spirit, is saying that uh, God spoke by the prophets and now he is speaking by his son. He speaks by the disciples that his son is called. Uh, you can read about this in Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. Even Jesus said to his disciples that they are seeing what the prophets themselves desired to see. And Peter says that the prophets search for the same Christ that we now preach. And so when Paul says that the foundation is the apostles and the prophets, what God is doing uh, is God is revealing himself through the foundation of the Old Testament and the New Testament, united together, forming a single foundation, which is actually the revelation of God's plan. The foundation is God messaging himself to the world in the Old Testament and the New Testament in space and time, making himself known. And that foundation is the very message of God. We can think about God as being the great builder of this household uh, in his own uh, mind, so to speak. God uh, thinking about the design of the household, but he's actually revealed that design. And that design is in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Word of God. And the, the, uh, the blueprints show not merely a foundation, but also a cornerstone, again in verse 20. And this image of a cornerstone is important to the Bible. A cornerstone would be the corner foundation that all of the other pieces would, would actually line up against. And if all of the pieces line up against the cornerstone, then the building will be secure. Now, Jesus is the basis for the church through his work on the cross. Elsewhere in the Bible, we're told that Jesus is himself uh, that uh, cornerstone. And so the church uh, uh, achieves its structure and its shape uh, because of that work of Jesus, that sure part uh, uh, of the uh, foundation being Jesus himself. But Jesus, he's not just the, the, uh, the basis for the church, the, the guide which all the other pieces line up against. Jesus is himself the sustainer of the church. Remove the cornerstone and the entire structure falls apart. Some scholars prefer the word capstone over cornerstone. You remove the capstone and the arch collapses and the structure collapses. So Jesus is the basis, but he's also the sustainer of the church. And then while it's a little bit harder to discern, in addition to the foundation and the cornerstone, verse 21 talks about the whole structure being joined together. And this is the mortar of the household of God. In Ephesians 4, Paul is going to explain uh, the Holy Spirit as that which maintains the unity of the church. Uh, uh, Paul in Ephesians 4.3 says that the Holy Spirit is that bond of peace. The bond of peace, the cement of the church's peace. And in verse 22 in the ESV, uh, the Holy Spirit actually uh, builds us together. It's the Holy Spirit that is uh, doing that. At the very, uh, very end of Ephesians uh, chapter 3, the, uh, the Holy Spirit is strengthening the church body by strengthening individuals in the church. 
And so just as Jesus is the basis and the sustainer of the household of God, it's the Holy Spirit that converts us and the Holy Spirit that sustains us so that we are joined into that church. And so if you stand back from these three ingredients, you, you see what Paul is saying here, that the foundation is the, is the revelation of God. The cornerstone is Jesus himself, and the mortar is the Holy Spirit. The blueprint tells us that our citizenship in the household of God is actually cosmically significant. It's not a, a matter of attending a class or, or, in fact, go back before that, uh, finding a church that you feel comfortable in and then attending a class and then uh, becoming a member of the church before the congregation. Citizenship in the household of God is cosmically significant. God's plan from before time was to bring people into his household, and he's done this through Jesus The church body is the people of God that are actually drawn into God's own household by God's grace. This this is God's family. I want to say a few things. Uh, What are we we to do with this knowledge? How do we move forward with this? Well, your family actually, the family that you're living in now, your earthly family, the family filled with people whom you love, your family actually pales in comparison to God's family. If you love your family, if your family uh, is uh, just your, your strength and your rock and the source of all of your encouragement in life, uh, if your family is uh, the kind of family that we uh, or ordinarily only read about on Hallmark cards or uh, see in touchy-feely movies, you know, maybe that's your family, in which case it would be hard to hear then that even that family pales in comparison to the household of God. But it does. It pales by comparison. But I also want to address you if your family is not that Hallmark family. Maybe your family is the very opposite of that. Your family uh, actually has proven to be a great source of pain for you. Uh, This is a family uh, of hurt and tribulation. And your thoughts of family actually uh, don't engender uh, warm feelings but angry feelings. Now for you... It ought to be good to hear that the household of God actually causes that to look even less significant. And for you, the household of God ought to be even more enticing. See, if your family is wonderful, it might be hard to hear that your family is not so wonderful that it's more important than being a part of God's family. And if your family is really terrible, then you ought to be enticed by this wonderful family, and you ought to find it more than curious that God would speak to us in such a way that he is offering to us not merely a philosophical position that is better than all the other world's religions, but he's actually offering you intimacy to himself and to others. This family, this household of God, you see it has a builder unlike the builder of your family. And it has a foundation and a cornerstone and mortar uh, unlike your foundation and your cornerstone and your mortar. Well, I want to first ask this, how exactly can I be a part of this family? And I know that when I ask that question, how can I be a part of this family? Some of you will turn your noses up at me. Why would I even want to be a part of that family? And one of the reasons you might say that, I think there's a number of reasons, but one of the reasons you might say that is because you have actually done just fine with your replacement for everything that's described here in Ephesians chapter 2. 
You, you've actually created something uh, that is better than any household that could come to you from God. And the replacement that you have made usually goes by the name of community. And what you might say to me is, I actually don't want to be a part of that family because I have my own community right here and my own community serves me just fine. And I'm going to address that just a little bit later. But I do need to say this. If you actually want to be a part of this household of God, I want to say to you that, um, well, the price is actually too high. If you want to be a part of God's household, the price is uh, infinitely high. And in fact, you, you, can't, you can't actually afford it. You see, it's important to think that way because Ephesians would know that there was a cost to citizenship. If you wanted to become a citizen... There just was a cost. It might not merely be a monetary cost. It might be a cost in terms of rising to a state of an illustrious inhabitant of the city of Ephesus. But there is a cost to citizenship. And I want all of us to be aware that the cost to citizenship in the household of God is outrageously too high for any of us to pay. None of us can afford it. But Jesus, he can afford it. And Jesus, he actually has paid that price for membership in the household of God. And the reason it's important for us to understand that is because the household of God is a household which we enter by God's grace and grace alone. The only way that you can enter God's house is through Jesus Christ. His payment of that price of admission, he actually pays for you. And try as hard as you might to earn your way into that house Will you only prove to yourself that you are, after all, a stranger and an alien? You can't purchase admission in this household. But Jesus has. And Jesus offers admission into this household, intimacy with God and intimacy with other members of that household. He offers that to you freely. And you need only accept it. This is the only way that God's blueprint actually works. The builder has designed the household In this way, for those who belong to the church, this is a reminder of great comfort. This is part of the blueprint. No one can be like God. And no one can earn God's favor. It's always been this way. Before the fall and after the fall, no one can earn their way to God. This is just how the blueprint works. It must come through Jesus Christ. So for those who belong to the church, I want you to be very encouraged by this, even though uh, during the season of pandemic, uh, we aren't uh, feeling that intimacy that we have with one another. And I would venture to say that uh, because you're not feeling that intimacy with one another, you're actually missing a bit of intimacy with God himself. Because those two intimacies are very close together. Our brothers and sisters remind us of who we are in Jesus Christ. Remind us of the benefits of salvation. Remind us of the beauty of being adopted into this family. Those who are a part of the church, they help us in so many ways. And for us to not be with one another is, well, that's really hard. It impacts our intimacy with one another, but also our intimacy with God. But I, I want to return to those who would say that a man-made community is better than this in every way. And this is, this is how I want to conclude. I just want to say to you that if the foundation of the community is you, the foundation of the community is you or your peers, 
The highest revelation of that community is always going to be something about you or something about someone else. Uh, This community, uh, if it grows uh, really large and if this community uh, has a stronger and louder message, this community is only going to be spreading the message of individuals in that community. The community really is only going to spread your message. The community is never going to be about something more than you or more than your peers. The community is never going to be otherworldly. The community is never going to be cosmic. The community can never be eternal. And the community can never be truly uh, life-transforming like the Word of God. It will always be local and in a bad way. Your community that you make, it will always be local in a bad way. It will be provincial. It will be common. That's if the foundation of your community is on you. If the cornerstone of your community is on you, or if the cornerstone of your community is on another member, it's never going to be perfect. You're not perfect. No one in your community is perfect. And the weaknesses of you and those in your community are actually going to reverberate throughout the community so that the community will never be firm and powerful and victorious. The community will have wavy walls. It can't be otherwise. And you're going to think that's a good thing, and you're going to call it things like authentic and real. But it's wavy and imperfect, and it's inferior. And not only if the foundation of the community is you, or if the cornerstone of the community is you, if the mortar of the community is you, or if the mortar of your community is your goodwill, or the goodwill of others, there's always going to be significant flaws. Some of you will have to be excised because they don't meet the goodwill standards of the community. And you might actually have to excise yourself and go form another community with uh, better rules or better people. You see what happens, the cement of that community is always uh, releasing and reattaching, releasing and reattaching. Because the other pieces might not always follow your rules and you might not follow all of their rules. So if the mortar of the community is you, it's very temporary indeed. But you see, the household of God has one foundation, God the Father. And the household of God has one cornerstone, God the Son. And the household of God has one mortar, God the Holy Spirit. And the church body is the people of God that are actually drawn into God's own household by God's own grace. And so the foundation is sure. The cornerstone is perfect. And the mortar will never let you down. This is the household of God offered to you freely. Let's pray together. For those of us, Father, who are a part of the church, we pray that you would forgive us for thinking lightly of her. For disregarding her. We pray that you would forgive us even for uh, finding happiness and being away from her, away from her people. So, Father, we thank you for the household of God, and we ask that you would remind us of her beauty. And for those who are not part of the household of God, who have found some kind of replacement, we would ask that by your mercy, and even with great tenderness, that you would entice them with the aroma of your house that they would desire that citizenship better than any other community they could fashion on their own. We ask that you would do these things in your grace. Amen.